Welcome to another episode of the Speech and Repeat podcast today with the one and only Joe Foster. Hey, Joe, how's it going? It's, it's going fine. Thank you, Jonathan. It's uh, nice to meet you. I'm excited that we're doing this. Uh, you are an incredible man with an incredible story. And um, let's, let's, you know, we, we always start the same way in the sense that we would like to, to kind of obviously understand who is it that we're talking to. Um, and, and so the, the first question to, to, to jumpstart this, um, basically, is obviously to kind of find out who Joe is, right? So please give us, give us kind of the, the backstory. Who are you? Where are you coming from? What's your story? And how did you end up where you are today? So who's Joe Foster? Right, uh, Joe Foster is Reebok. And um, not many people, until having written the book, know or even heard much about Joe Foster. Mainly because um, when, you, when we launched, brother and myself, we launched the brand, um, our idea was to tell the world about Reebok and, and not Joe Foster, not even Jeff Foster. <laughs> Joe, unfortunately, my brother's not with us. But uh, so Joe Foster is, is a result really of uh, something I was saying earlier where I retired from the business came to Tenerife, we're in Tenerife now, we're just on holiday, came to Tenerife and I say, looking at uh, Wikipedia and Google, I'm finding that people are saying, this is how Reebok started, and this is a photograph of Joe Foster, and neither were right. And I'm saying, well, okay, <clears throat> why don't I write a story and put this straight? So we have it down. So that in the end, people can say, okay, that's the story of Reebok, and it starts, of course, I say, 1895. With my grandfather, that's a Foster family. So Joe Foster now is the author of the book Shoemaker. And Shoemaker, of course, is a story, my particular story, not the whole story of Reebok, my story of Reebok. And uh, I say, I did that to put things right. So, so that's who Joe Foster is. And as I say, that story starts with my grandfather. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I like how, how you basically identify your name with, with you know, with, with, with the brand. So Reebok, I, I think, you know, mo most probably almost every person has, uh, has heard of the brand Reebok. You know, let's, let's go maybe to the, to the early days of the brand uh, before it basically got, you know, global recognition. Bef and, and before we jump into these crucial moments of making it known basically worldwide you know tell me about these early days of, of building building the brand let me uh, let me take you back to the, the need why did we uh my brother myself why did we set up a, a separate company from the foster family jw foster and sons um that was a family business set up uh, in 1900 my grandfather at 15 years old made himself a pair of running shoes with spikes in, and he then became a business, J.W. Foster. And J.W. Foster's, they made athletic shoes, uh, they made football boots, soccer boots, training shoes, and they supplied an awful lot of uh, football teams in the United, so they had a United Kingdom. They had a good business. My grandfather built a good business. Uh, you've heard of Chariots of Fire, the film? Actually, no, no, I haven't. You've not? Well, Chariots of Fire is a film made of three athletes, they're British athletes, and they all won gold medals during yeah. the 1920s. Yeah. And uh, so the, the company was good. It was a big company, but my grandfather died in 1933. I wasn't born until 1935, but I was born on his birthday. So my grandmother insisted, I brought my name with me. My grandfather was a Joseph, so a Joe Foster. So I am Joe Foster. So, you know, that puts me in the family, um, the family business, which had been going for 40 years. And okay, so I joined business when, when I'm 17. I've been to college and came in at 17. Uh, but, you know, back then we had to do national service. Yeah. It was not long after World War II. So national service was something we had to do. Jeff and I, we went almost at the same time. Jeff went to Germany, and what did he see? He saw Adidas and Puma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And saw what they were doing. And when he came back, and I came back, we came back to the Foster family, and we came back to a failing business. It was my father and uncle, they fought. A bit like Adidasler and Rudy Dassler. 
They couldn't get on with each other. So wisely, Rudy left and set up Puma. Unfortunately, the Foster family kept feuding. They just kept fighting. And, you know, that doesn't do a business any good. So they were looking after this business which my grandfather had started, but they were failing it. And we tried, we tried to get them to change, to realize that things were changing. They had to work together. We had to do marketing. Really set a business plan. No, it was, the word was, look, when, when my father would say, when I've gone and your uncle's gone, this business will be yours to do what you want with. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, I said, look, Dad, I don't want you to go. That's not the, <laughs> that's not in the plan. You know, you going doesn't answer the plan. The problem is this company will be gone. Yeah. Long before you are gone. So eventually in 1958, Jeff and myself, we'd done some more college work, learning, learning about shoemaking, not just running shoemaking. We decided to leave. So we left the J.W. Foster Company because we wanted a future. And we left that and about six miles down the road, about 10 kilometers, we, we set up uh, a company and, uh, and a, a sports company. We called it Mercury Sports Footwear. So Mercury Sports Footwork, that was how the reason that we set up a company is that we had to do something different than our father and uncle were doing. So that was the start of our company. But of course, Mercury, well, nobody knows of Mercury because 18 months after we were in that business and we were doing nicely. Our accountant, he said, look guys, you're doing really well. Um, you better register that name Mercury. Otherwise, if somebody comes along and starts saying, we like Mercury, we'll make some of those shoes, you're going to have trouble then with, uh, with who does that name belong to. So uh, we couldn't register Mercury, though, because it was already pre-registered when we tried. Um, it was British Shoe Corporation, a rather large corporation, and uh, they, they offered us the brand for £1,000. Now, £1,000... Seems nothing today, but we just set up our factory, a whole factory we set up for 250 pounds. So the thought of paying a thousand pounds, we just didn't have the money. <laughs> we didn't have the money. So uh, I went to see an agent in Manchester and he pointed through his window. It's a nice day in May, lovely. And pointed through his window to a name Kodak. And uh, I'm saying, well, what's with Kodak? And he said, well, they made that name up. It's theirs. You know, you, you make the name. If you can do that, that'll be a, the best name you can, you can have. Uh, but he said, don't bring me one name. Bring me 10. And I'm saying, why 10? Well, we have to test these with the register. And if we go one at a time, it'd probably take a month to just get one name. And if that doesn't work, you've got to go again and again and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we could be here for a long time checking out names. So I don't know if you've done this, but we have, well, we've got to change our name. So we sit down around the table and start thinking, you could have a new name. Falcon, that's a good name. Yeah, Falcon, Falcon Sport, or maybe Cougar, Cougar. Yeah. Yeah, but let me, let me take you back to 1943. We're in the middle of World War II, and a bit like COVID, we couldn't go anywhere. Everything was closed down. We, but there were local events. And I, I was entered into a 60-yard race, which is about, well, about 50 metres, I would imagine. But uh, uh, so I was entered that, and I won the race. And I went up to collect my prize. And, uh, well, what did I get? I got a dictionary. I'm eight years old, and I get a dictionary. And I'm saying, look, guys, where's the football? You know, I mean... I'm a kid, where's, where's football? I'm gonna say, what can I do with a dictionary? And, and as it happened, it happened to be an American dictionary, a Webster's American dictionary. And that's, that, which is something different from Oxford English dictionary. The Oxford English dictionary, which I would know of, spells certain words in a different way. Like the American spelling of color, they miss out the U. There's just C L O R. Um, and the British or the English spelling of that is C-O-L-O-U-R. Well, I, this is American Dictionary. Of course, it, 
it got stuck in a corner for many years. But here I am now in 1960, we're looking for names. And my dictionary is there, and I like the letter R. The letter R was a nice, strong letter for me. So I opened my American Webster's dictionary on the letter R, and I start thumbing through. And it's not long before I come across R-W-B-O-K. Reebok, what's that? It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle? <laughs> We're a running company. Wow. <laughs> Fabulous. Let's put that top of the list. And that was it. Top of the list, went back to the agents and said, look, here's your 10 names, but we want Reebok. We've got to be in love with this. It's got to be our passion. You know, it's, it's got to be our brand. And uh, of course, he wasn't that impressed. He was sort of saying, well, okay, you know, we'll put it through and see what happens. And it took a couple of weeks before he came back and he came back and said, the only one of all your 10 names that you can have really is Reebok. Wow, fantastic. He said, but there is a caveat to this because the registrar, registrar says, if anybody comes along and says they're making uh, shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop. Oh, okay. And Jeff and I sort of now, people are not going to do that. Nobody's going to come along with anything. Uh, but, however, because of that, they put us in part B of the register. And to me, a register was a register. I didn't know there was a part A or a part B or whatever. Anyway, we're in part B of the register. Ten years later, the registrar came back to us and said, we've moved you to part A of the register now because everybody now knows that Reebok is, is a sports shoe. So that's yeah. how we... Yeah, so that's how it became Reebok. That's, that, that's a cool story. So, you know, it's incredible. So when, when exactly was the year that you, you started the company with your brother? 1958. 1958, okay. And what, when, what, when was, what, what was the year that you basically ended the chapter Reebok? Yeah, I retired at the end of 1989. Okay, 1989. So... Let, let's look at that period and, and give me highlights of that period, you know, from, and it could be anything that you would like to share because there are so many things I would not know what exactly to ask her, but that's a long, that's a long time. Okay. Yeah. That's a long time and a long time in which you can build and which, which you then basically proved obviously where you can build a great business. And, and oftentimes I think people forget nowadays and, 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 you know, in, in this technology world, driven world that um, things oftentimes take take time and, and they're grown over time. Um, so, you know, let's let's look at that period and, and maybe spot some some, you know, one, two, three highlights in, in, in that long period. Well, there's highlights and lowlights, if you will, in any uh, in any period of uh, growing a business. There, there are a lot of problems. Um, but, you know, let's, let's start with that problem of the name. You know, we'd only been in business 18 months and we have a problem. That's so, true. <laughs> yeah, we have to answer a problem. And uh, we want to, and, but then we end up with a name which is better. So we look at our problem and say, yeah. And now I still look at problems and say, wow, that's an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. So our problem is an opportunity. And it, it's how can you turn those? We, we were in our business about four years. When the second blow came, if you will call it a second blow, and that was a letter from the lawyers of Adidas. The lawyers, <laughs> the lawyers sent a letter because our silhouette had two stripes and a T-bar. And they were claiming that our two stripes and a T-bar was infringing the Adidas three stripes yeah. uh, logo. So again, you know, we, and we're thinking, and for five minutes, we're like, oh my God, what's happened here? But then, you know, we, we start smiling. And we're thinking, Adidas, no, we're here. <laughs> Adidas, yeah. Adidas think they need to, to say something. And uh, yeah, we must be making an impact. Fine. So what do you do? We change our silhouette. Again, it's a question of, okay, maybe the two stripes and the T-bar. But we changed it to what is now, uh, it's, it's like an arrow shape. And, uh, and, and, and that now... It was better. It was much better than the two stripes. And, and it allowed us down the road to put a window in it and put Reebok in there. So if you look at a Reebok person, I mean, not in every Reebok shoe, but now one of the features is this window 
with a nice fabric uh, Reebok with the Union Jack, sometimes not the Union Jack behind it. In fact, the Union Jack was another uh, item, but that comes later. It, it, it had our Starcrest logo and Reebok in it. So it gave us a different opportunity. So again, we looked back on this and think, well, yeah, you know, it was a problem at the time when you, you, you look at your letter, but now we, we have a, a, better, a better silhouette. Um, so yes, beyond that, I, there's so many things that happened to us, but talking about good thing though, because Adidas was so strong in, in football, that we we didn't we didn't go there. We made the odd one or two, but we didn't go there. To get into football would have cost an awful lot of money. So we stayed with athletics. We stayed with running. And uh, late in the 1960s, the running market in America started to grow. And I wanted to get into the American market. Very good. So Probably the first thing that uh, was really of note is that I'm reading a book. I think it was Eurosport, a magazine. And I read in the magazine that British government, they're advertising, the British government is advertising for us to export. Mm. And they said, well, if, uh, if, if you will attend the NSGA show in Chicago, we will, we will pay for the stand. We will pay for your return airfare. And we'll pay for half of your hotel bill. I didn't take much persuaded to, for me to say, I'm going, I'm off to Chicago. So in 1968, I went off to Chicago, uh, to the NSGA show, and uh, right, brilliant. All the Americans, big, big, big show. And lots of people love the product. And they're saying, uh, okay, where do I get the product from? And I'm, I'm telling them, from England. England, yeah, okay. is that New England? Ah, you know, no, 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 not New England, it's across the water. Oh, is that near London? It's near London. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, when you get somebody over here who, you know, stuck a product over here, we'll, we'll really love to try your shoes. I did realize that I needed that. I needed to get a distributor. And uh, now we're talking 1968. When did I get my distributor? 1979. That's, that's a long time. <laughs> that's 11 years of keep trying to keep going. Uh, I had at least six people, six attempts there, and they all failed. They could not, we could not get into that market. But now, I, I said earlier, the running market in America was starting to grow. People wanted to go out training and road running. And the magazine, Runner's World, I don't know if you've ever heard of Runner's World. Runner's World, late 1960s was an A4 piece of paper, which just told you where the races were going on. By 1975, that single piece of paper turned into a magazine, 50 pages, full color, and so many people were buying it. You know, we think of America, 350 million people, 10%, maybe 35 million were by then out running. And that's great. So all they were buying this magazine. So this magazine was very persuasive. And um, Bob Anderson, Bob Anderson was the publisher. And he thought he was doing so good. He could tell everybody which was the best running shoe. So which was the best? And of course, Nike. It was a Nike shoe. He chose a Nike shoe. That was the best running shoe they could buy. But you know, Phil Knight. Phil Knight is importing Nike from Japan. Now, all of a sudden, there's a band. We say there's 35 million Americans running, maybe 10% wanted this shoe. Three and a half million people suddenly want your shoe. He's doing nicely. Nike are doing nice, good business. But how does he, how does he, how does he get a hold of that, that demand? He didn't. Because it, it takes so long for production to wind up, gear up. 12 months later, Ronda's World decided they say, oh, there's another shoe now is number one. You know, wow. The retail trade, of course, in America, they were up in arms because shoes were now coming in from Nike, but all of a sudden there's another number one. So everybody wants the next number one. Well, whether, I don't think it was another Nike. I think it was a New Balance probably at that point. Uh, so Bob Anderson, who was a bit sort of, um, well, he got a bit upset at the fact that everybody was upset at him. 
So he decided to change and he changed it to star ratings. So a five star shoe would be the best shoe and so on, five star, four star. And, and this, was, this, was our, uh, this was our opportunity because I knew that to, to get a number one shoe, that was a bit of a lottery, a bit difficult to, to say, yeah, you're the number one shoe. And so risky, you could never really uh, gear up in time. As I say, that Phil Knight had that problem. But I knew we could make a five-star shoe. <laughs> I knew, we, you know, we were part of that business. We, we knew it. And I knew we could make a five-star shoe. And we did do. Um, but my five-star shoe, it was 19, uh, 1979. I'm in Chicago again. Uh, and it was in February. February in Chicago, I cannot recommend that's a place to be because it is cold. <laughs> it is cold in it. Oh, and the wind coming off uh, Lake Michigan is like icing, terrible. But okay, the exhibitions are good though. And I had my, uh, my five-star shoe, my, well, what I believe would be a five-star shoe, Aztec. I had my Aztec shoe. We had tested our gold range. Our gold range consisted of a spike shoe, Inca, of a, of a racing shoe, Midas, and of our training shoe, Aztec. And we, we tested out the Commonwealth Games uh, in Edmonton, and we, we, we got a lot of medals. We got a lot of medals that way. So I was pretty sure we had this five-star shoe, and I have it on exhibition. Now, there's a, a rather large retail outfit in, uh, in America called Kmart. And Kmart are very big. And Kmart came up to the stand and said, okay, like your shoes, uh, we'd like to order 25,000 pairs. Wow, we're a small factory. That's about six months of work for our small factory. But you know, you do some thinking when you're thinking, well, maybe we'll, yeah, we're gonna get a five-star shoe. If we do, the demand, if we get it, could be big. Um, so I was talking to a company called Barter. Barter were then uh, the leading shoemakers in the world. They had factories all over the world and they said they would help. I had a friend there, so they would help. But then came up and said, yeah, but we need a better price. Ah, Barter could make it slightly better, but I knew that meant, it meant Asia. It meant going to South Korea. And again, we pre-thought this and I had a connection with an agency in, in South Korea. Right, so we could probably match that. Okay, but then also Paul Feynman. I don't think you've heard of Paul Feynman. He, he eventually became my uh, American distributor. He was the one. He came to the stand. He was just, he and his brother and his brother-in-law that were running a company in Boston called Boston Camping. A Boston Camping, they were selling tents, fishing rods, whatever, a wholesale, wholesale um, outdoors company. And I could tell he'd been, so they'd probably been doing this for 10 years. And they were a bit, he was a bit tired of the same old going around that, uh, that fishbowl and, and not going anywhere. <clears throat> and uh, I liked him. We got on well. And, uh, and <clears throat> Paul said, Joe, love to be your distributor. But, uh, you know, to get in there, we, re we really need a five star shoe. And I said, Paul, come and have a look at it. This Aztec, this is the one. You, and he said, okay, Joe, okay, I know, I know. But he said, it's not a five-star shoe yet, is it? No. And it won't be until August. August is when the shoe edition of Runner's World comes out, and that's the time. And we're here in February. Well, it's about six months off, like, okay. So, yeah, we part, and uh, I, I go back from Chicago. But then I go to visit America, and I, I, I go on to Kmart, because they had, uh, you know, they said 25 But I, I, I realized when I, I saw the salesman uh, that, uh, that had come to see me, he, he's in a room with 50 other people. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, 25,000 purse, but it may be my first, and it may be my last 25,000 purse if I go with an outfit this big, because they obviously work things out per square footage, per square meter. And if, if the sales don't stand up to that, that's it. So I also went to see Paul Feynman in Boston. Nice little company. He's there with his brother, his brother-in-law, and a nice little outfit. Great, yeah. This you know, Reebok could fit in quite nicely. 
And Paul, Paul decided he'd come over to the UK, have a sit, have a look at what Reebok was like. Our factory was miserable. It was a small factory, and he was a bit disappointed with that. I'm saying, no, no, Paul, you know, really, we're talking about the product, and we can get the product made, we can get the volumes. We don't have to gear up our factory. We know we can do that. So, and we took it to some events, some 10K events, where, of course, we knew which events to take him to, and the winner was always in Reebok. Uh, and half of the field was in Reebok. So he was impressed enough that we, 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 we had a good representation of the product. Right, the end of July, that's when the Runners World magazine comes out. The August magazine comes out the last week in July. And I get on the phone to Paul. I said, Paul, can you, can you go down to the local kiosk? Just, just go down and see if they've got the Runners World edition, the shoe edition. An hour later, Paul came back. Joe, Aztec, you got five stars. Fabulous. Well, but not only that, the Inca and the Midas, they also got five stars in their own category. He was in. That was it. We had Paul and we found our way in. We were... We, instead of been pushing, pushing, now we're going to be drawn in. So that was how Reebok got into America. And that was probably maybe the one big thing that happened to us. That was, that was when, you, when you guys were still like focusing, purely focusing on, on, on the running shoe market. And um, you said like you were winning a lot of medals and stuff. So, you know, in, in, when was the moment um, that that you basically realized that you would also deviate from just being a running shoe company, but like to to produce to produce shoes that are also you know geared geared towards um, non athletes, you know, in the sense of kind of building building or moving the brand also into uh, a lifestyle lifestyle brands somehow. I mean, most of these things, you don't sit down and plan it. <laughs> because <clears throat> it's difficult to plan anything like that. It's just, what happens? Well, what happened is that we're a running shoe company, and we're doing nicely. Um, and we have a tech rep who's down here in Los Angeles. It's called Arnold Martinez. And he's a tech rep. He's a good athlete himself. But he, uh, <clears throat> he would go into the stores and tell everybody what the good thing is about the Reebok shoe. <clears throat> this is great. <clears throat> me. But uh, his wife, his wife Frankie, she's she's going to aerobic classes. Nobody's heard of aerobic classes at all. And uh, she's coming back with her friends. And Arnold says, oh, "What are you doing? Like, what's all this? Aerobics? What is it?" And she said, "Well, we're actually exercising to music, and it's really fabulous." Oh, Arnold's impressed. And Arnold said. Can I come down to your next uh, class that you go to? Yeah, yeah, why not? So we went down to the next class and he, he saw the instructor wearing uh, sneakers. We think probably New Balance, we think sneakers. And half the class are wearing the same sneaker and the same leggings. The other half of the class are wearing no shoes at all. For, for Arnhill, that was, and for Reebok, that was a light, light bulb moment. Why don't we make shoes specifically for aerobics? <laughs> specifically for women. Just on a woman's last to fit a woman's foot. No men's sizes. And it will be made out of blood leather with a nice cushion. It'll have the Reebok name on the side and the Union Jack. Oh, right. So Arnold, he's in Los Angeles. He takes the next flight he can to Boston. Goes to see Paul Fireman. He's so excited. And he's telling Paul all about this. And Paul's saying, Whoa, slow down. Slow down, Arnold. You know, we're a running company. We're doing pretty well. Why do we want to make dancing shoes for these girls? Well, Arnold was sort of trying to enthuse Paul into saying, We'll give it a try. And Paul said, Look, you know, we'll, um, we'll think about it. Arnold wasn't happy with that. And Arnold, we're a small company. So Arnold managed to go around to the back door and sort of have a word with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was in charge of production in those days. 
and he made a better impression on Steve than he had on Paul. And I want I want some some samples I could take. Well, it took a little while, but Arnold got Arnold got his two hundred pairs of uh, uh, samples of a um, of an aerobic shoe specific. Took them down to LA, gave them to all the instructors down there, and a few of the leading girls. They loved them, absolutely loved them. And they didn't just wear them for aerobics. They wore them to go to work. They wore them when they were out enjoying themselves. They were so soft and great. Oh, big problem though. We had made them in glove leather. And glove leather, like a piece of paper, you could just tear it apart. It's so easy. So these, these shoes, after a month, you were falling apart. Now, had we been anywhere in the world, apart from Los Angeles, I think Reebok would have died at that moment because it would have killed us. <laughs> but the girls loved them so much. Just went out and bought another pair. It took probably a month or two months to get this right, to get the leather, which was more like a garment leather instead of a glove leather. We've got that right, great. Then we got Jane Fonda buying a pair of shoes and using them in her in workout uh, videos. And the whole thing went crazy. That exploded us. That put us onto the street, became fashion, became a lifestyle. That's what did it. And we were a $9 million company, $9 million company then. Four and a half years to five year, years later, we were a $1 billion company. So we went in those, I think it went to, from, from 9 million to, to 30 million to 90 million uh, to 300 million, then to 900 million. And, and was that in that period, so from 9 million to 1 billion in five years, you say? Yes. Was that period, how, how was that period financed? Was, was that already, like, was there a period where, uh, was, in that period, was there external uh, funding basically coming in or was that just, Pure, that growth was purely managed out of the cash flows. Well, once we got going, it managed out of cash flows, but we needed cash to start. And that's where Stephen Rubin, Pentland Industries, he came in. Um, you, you may know them as JD Sports these days. Yeah. They're, they're a big, uh, big retailer now. In fact, they, they've just become a big connection for Reebok now that ABG have got the brand. They're, they're going to become a big exclusive, uh, of not the, I said non-exclusive, but a big, a special retailer. However, uh, uh, Stephen came in and he provided money because what he, uh, he he had a sourcing company, uh, which was uh, in Korea. They sourced the brand, and he came in to put money. He didn't really put money in the company. What he did, he gave us a credit line. Yeah. <laughs> he gave it a credit line, and of course, since he was uh, sourcing the shoes, he would get his five percent. At the beginning so that's how he was getting a return on his money so that, that was great so he financed it but you know the biggest problem was when we got to 300 million and then moved to 900 million that wasn't financing that was the problem it was where do you get the product in, yeah. in sort of a 12 to 18 month period how do you get from 300 million to 900 million and that was again that was a stroke of luck for us another stroke of luck because nike and i see you wearing a nike top there I'll, I'll forgive you for, for wearing that whilst you're talking to me. <laughs> Nike, Nike ran into trouble. They, uh, you know, they've been rising so fast and all of a sudden things, uh, things flattened off for them. And they had to pull out of at least three factories in South Korea. And just at the time when we needed that. So this is where your luck comes in. And we managed to move in and managed to get the product. So we... We're going up to close on a billion, and that happened so quick. And then, of course, we continued and we moved into sport because you know, relying simply on one product, aerobics, you know, you could, that's not sustainable. Yeah. So then Reebok moved across into, first of all, tennis. And the reason they chose tennis is that Reebok had developed this nice soft leather. And it, it was the first sports footwear company that had a nice soft leather. Normally leather was fairly firm and uh, you, know, you, you worked it nicely because leather has this plastic quality and an elastic quality. So the plastic quality allows it to be molded to the shape of a shoe, but it's a rather firm piece of leather. The soft leather just drops a bit 
and, and it almost became a feature of the aerobic shoes, the wrinkles in the toe, because it's a soft leather. So it almost became a feature, but now we're going into tennis and tennis, yes, nice soft shoes. You know, the Stan Smith was a big favorite, still is a big favorite, but in those days it was a very stiff leather shoe. And it, it was, you had to break it in. So by the time you broke it in, you know, you, you, you were almost out of uh, thinking of another pair, but with Reebok, they were soft. You could put them on and it was great. And I remember the advert that, uh, that Paul Fireman, well, the agency put it out actually. And that was, if you don't find that these Reebok shoes, these Reebok tennis shoes are the best you've ever worn, we'll give you your money back and a can of balls, tennis balls. I'll give you that. And, and I remember the, the line at the bottom was, Reebok put their balls on the line. And so it was a great ad. And I remember in America, um, Paul bought two cases of tennis balls because he thought, we're going to get a lot of these back. You know, somebody's going to do that. I think it, during the whole ad campaign, they only got through half a, half a box of these cans of balls. So yeah. it was great. So we're, we're moving in. So soft leather became this nice... Wonderful soft leather went into street, became street, and the classics came out and went into basketball and the pump and those sort of things. And uh, so the company grew. And uh, when we were just close to $4 billion, um, I had put on then, I put America on, and I'd been traveling around the world, putting different distribution on. So the distribution, I put another 30 countries on over those I did about 10 years of uh, growth in America. And it was the end of 89 and I decided you know, I should stop flying around the world because <laughs> I, I was forever at 35,000 feet and uh, I was doing nothing but flying and going around the world three times a year. It was a bit of a, it, it sounds good. <laughs> but, you know, you, you fly in and you're picked up by a limousine wherever you fly to. You go to the best hotel and you, you're dining at the best uh, restaurants. But really, at this time, I mean, like I say, the challenge had gone. You know, I'd been used to challenges you know, from the start right to where the challenge had gone. And uh, I thought, no, it's time, time to stop this. Even though, you know, there were some fantastic Fantastic. I was uh, I was hosting uh, a pro celebrity tournament in Monte Carlo, and uh, everybody loved going to Monte Carlo. So all the A-listers were coming in from Hollywood, and all the top tennis stars were coming in, and we we're putting this this wonderful event on. You know, we we had people like John Forsyth, Linda Evans, uh, John Collins, Frank Sinatra, uh, Sean Connery, Roger Moore. All these guys they were all taking part. Was a, was a great opportunity, a great experience. But you know, for me, it was a time, you know, I, I knew this would never go on forever. And it's time that why don't I sort of back out gracefully and, and retire? So at the end of uh, 1989, I decided that was it. Uh, the company, the company at that time was corporate. Yeah. You know, nothing's personal anymore. You've got tons of lawyers, tons of accountants, and a lot yeah. of people. In yeah, you know, before 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 I ask you, uh, I have two two questions already in the back of my head. But you know, how did that first month look like after leaving? Uh, you know, after retiring, what, what did you do? <laughs> well, it was it was almost a bit like being on drugs. It was almost like, where's the next ticket? Why am I not flying? It was like, you know, I, I should be moving. <laughs> so yeah, it was pinning me down to sort of you know, no, just lie down, enjoy, just relax, but. You know, it's amazing. You look forward to that time when you can just say, oh, right, not gonna come, not gonna go on another flight. I can relax now. I can lie back. Um, but you it's it's like itchy, you say, you know, I should be I should be traveling. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that first month was uh, maybe maybe I, I tolerated the month pretty well. I think it was probably the first six months became became that problem. Like uh, how do you keep on just lying back and but anyway, I mean I did lie back for quite some time until, as, uh, as I said earlier, you know, I start reading uh, Wikipedia and Google. <laughs> and, like, oh. and now, of course, I've got another challenge. Now I'm back with a challenge because the book is doing great. 
But, you know, we want to get it to uh, a bestseller, especially in America, because, you know, that's where we, we made, really, we made the, um, the brand of Reebok really grew in America. Fantastic. I mean, I did mention the Union Jack. And it's funny this, because we had the Starcrest. If, you, if you've got a pair of Reeboks, you know what the Starcrest is on the top. And it's a, it's a sort of a circle thing, that star to the star. Uh, and I'm talking with Paul Feynman, and it's in the early days. And Paul is saying, I love the Starcrest. Fantastic. But, you know, it looks a bit like the Union Jack. I said, okay, yeah. Um, and Paul said, it's going to cost us millions to get people to recognize the Starcrest. Why don't we use the Union Jack? Because everybody in America recognizes the Union Jack. And that's, yeah. how, we, that's how we started using it. And we were, were quite small. We didn't have any point of sale. But what we did do, we put them in a, a box with a Union Jack lid. And the retailers, they picked this up and started to put it in their windows. And they built mm. a pyramid, all these Union Jacks with this a shoe stood on each uh, each one of the boxes <clears throat> so that was a great a great pr campaign and it really really got things moving so we had a you know a number of things that that you do you know you don't plan these things that well <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah yeah no um but uh, hey joe so you know uh, two questions that i have in, in in the back of my head which are related to people so let me start with the first one tell me about you, you must have them in, in also in the back of your head, you know, t tell me about one, two, three examples of, of encounters, crucial encounters with, with people that really shaped your time or really shaped your, your, your face or, you know, in, in building Reebok. So, and it could be, it can be anyone, you know, um, from, from, you know, business partners, politics, I don't know, celebrities, whatever, you know, just like, three two three examples or one example that depends obviously on how many you you got in the in, in your pocket you know of of like these crucial encounters which you know which are very memorable to you yeah i think one of the first crucial encounters was, was a guy it's it's in my book i i met up with a, a a guy called john willie johnson and johnny johnson he he had a, a large a large factory very near to where our small factory was and uh, during the 1960s, uh, a lot of business was going out of Europe to the Far East because of the price. So a lot of factories in the UK were closing down. And these factories, they were closing down. They, they became all the machinery and the bits were auctioned. So we went to an auction um, and I was there and John Willie Johnson was there and he used to, he used to buy all the bits and pieces. In fact, he, he didn't have a bid for anything, but when nothing, when something came up by an auctioneer, couldn't sell it, he would look at John Willie Johnson and John Willie would just not, okay. And it, it became his. Well, because we lived quite close and I'd had a, a bit of an encounter, I'd gone down in my van, <laughs> picking up uh, the, the bits and pieces that I'd bought and I overloaded my van. And I got stopped by the police. The police, and I got fined because I was overweight. And I told this story to John, and John said, "Why don't you come with me? We'll go together." He said, "Because whatever we do, my men will pick all the stuff up, and we'll we'll drop it up at your press." Okay. So I I started then going to these auctions with John Willie Johnston, and I said to John, "I said, what do you do with all this stuff that you buy?" Oh, he said, "I'll show you." The next time. Come a little early and we'll go and have a look. And he had this big warehouse, massive, three or four floors. And we went in and it's full of everything. Stuffed bears, a stuffed crocodile as well. Um, all the bits and pieces you could think. And loads of machinery. And we're passing one machine, one. As I, I said to John, oh, John, I could do with one of these machines. Can I buy it off you? And he said, no. I said, Oh, can I rent it then? No. Okay. He said, you can have it. Right? It just let him, just give it me back when you've done with it. Now, he did this. I must have had at least half a dozen machines, at least six machines that we, he did that. 
And not only did, did he let us have it, his men brought it to our small factory, put it in place, wired it up, and it was ready to use. And he didn't want anything. You know, that was the sort of person that uh, you, you meet these people and uh, <clears throat> they just do things. Another one was Derek Shackleton. We used to call him Shack. He, he was a good salesman, you know, a good salesman, they sell themselves. That's the first thing a good salesman does, is to sell himself. Then he can sell his product. And this guy, we, uh, Reebok nearly went out of business because we had a distributor, he went out of business and it nearly took us down as well. But Shackleton, Shack, he just, he was working with Barter and he, he said, okay, we'll, we'll buy some shoes off you. And he helped, and we must have had about six different uh, people that we knew just placed orders with the factory. And that kept us going. So we nearly went out of business on numerous occasions, but these are the people. So they make, they make big impressions. And then, of course, we've got Paul Feynman, who took on the, uh, the brand in America. And, and, and you've got Angel Martinez, who found aerobics do you have a, a like a memory of the first time you saw your shoes also at the um, olympic games or something like that there are many memories of seeing your shoes at the olympics but peter radford he was a sprinter <clears throat> under meter sprinter and again it's well before uh, uh, how was that like how, how was that to see your shoes basically being there well you know that was our that was our job that's what we did. I mean, <clears throat> this was something we purposely went into. One of the uh, best, if we're talking about looking or seeing your product, is that when, when road racing became big, <clears throat> almost every big city in the world had a marathon. A lot of marathons. Berlin had a marathon. We had marathons all, all through. <clears throat> and we must be now talking about <clears throat> the 70s, early 70s, um, or maybe mid to late centers, and these were almost televised. So, <clears throat> whenever you get a televised event, okay, we supplied an awful lot of uh, athletes, and we set up we set up Reebok Racing Club. Now, because these ten Ks, they, they really had nothing to do with athletic clubs. <clears throat> you, you could be in, in an athletic club, and that was different because these races were open to anybody. So we set up Reebok Racing Club and we had a, a shirt, a special outfit, <clears throat> as well as the shoes. And we gave our top athletes, we gave them all the Reebok Racing Club shirt. And a lot of people bought it, but we gave it to top athletes. They, and very rarely would we have an athlete who would win the race, but we knew they could stay at the lead at the front for at least 15 miles out of the 20, for three quarters of the distance, they could be at the front. <clears throat> so we told them, go to the front, we'll give you shoes and put yourself at the front for as long as you can stay at the front. So on television, we had the Reebok Racing Club shirts. And so we had, we had that on so many of the marathon races. That, that, right. that was good to see that happening. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, um, Joe, kind of as the last question um, for today, you now with your book are, are again, you know, flying, flying all over the place, um, talking to people, you know, telling your story. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a very, very much of a different time, obviously, nowadays than, than back, back when you were building up um, Reebok. What are some of the impressions that from, from nowadays also with, you know, with technology, social media and, and sort of th say, do you think that the opportunities nowadays are even bigger for entrepreneurs to build, to build businesses because of the technology, because of things such as social media compared to, you know, when, when you were flying to Chicago, no internet, um, you know, being, being at, um, at different shows, etc. Like, how, how do you how do you compare that? Like, yeah. Well, when uh, when I started to uh, expand the company, the only way to do it was to fly, was to go places, 
you know, was to go to Chicago, was to go to different places, going to Europe. Um, <clears throat> and all I had was a handful of uh, American Express traveler's checks. I didn't have a mobile phone. They didn't exist. We didn't have a computer. Yeah. So all this was done by going places and meeting people. Uh, and that's why I did an awful lot of flying uh, in those, certainly in those early days. In fact, I think I'd retired almost before mobile phones were, were out and about. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, now people do ask and say, you know, what would the young Joe be doing now? And I would say, wait, I would be really looking at technology. I would really make sure that I knew it because, okay, COVID has sort of helped Zoom to grow. Now, you know, if I, you were in Germany and the UK. I'm, I'm used to speaking, I think yesterday we were speaking to uh, um, Northern Carolina. There's a guy there organizing a tour for us. Um, during summer, we're going to be out in America for 12 weeks doing a tour with the book. So, but we're, we're talking and we talk every week. I, I talk to people all the time. This, this is a different medium. Um, and yes, you know, and I've done a couple of speaking at London Business School and uh, University College of London to the MBA students. And uh, we're talking about, you know, not an exit plan, but how we started and the things that we did. I mean, teaching, teaching MBA students now, it almost starts with, what is your exit plan? You have an idea of what's your exit plan. Well, we never had an exit plan. So things have changed. And right now, not only money and uh, information, you can get a lot of this now, and everything's on the computer. Just ask yeah. Google, and you can get it. So it is, it is different. Um, and since we've been traveling, we've bumped into a lot of things and talking about the metaverse. And uh, <laughs> NFT and cryptos, yeah, it's all all these things that are changing. How do you live in the uh, in the metaverse? And yeah, so there, there are loads of opportunities, but they are technology driven. A lot of it is technology driven now, and you know, people can make a fortune overnight. But maybe people could have made a fortune overnight in my days, but not quite so easy as today you know we we made it overnight but it took 20 years to get there <laughs> <laughs> yeah i, I like that <laughs> hey joe it was incredibly to have you in the show you know thanks so much for being in the podcast jonathan it's been great enjoyed it loved it and uh, enjoy whatever you do be a success